the future of the public, you know, the CPA and public accounting is not more complex regulatory issues. It's not more gap pronouncements. It's not more complicated code sections and regulations. It's really in how do we increase profitability for our clients? How do we help them navigate the business issues that they're having? Um, How do we become that partner? Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 26 of Improv is No Joke podcast. Thank you very much for downloading this episode. Today's guest is Ashley Matthews, who is a senior manager of taxation at the accounting firm of Rain Associates. Ashley is a former student of mine, and you'll hear more about that during the interview. Our discussion tackles two important topics, client relationships and the life of a millennial in today's workforce. I can sum up our conversation as it relates to client relationships in one word, communication. You have to have clear and concise communication between the client and the CPA so the advice given can be acted on quickly. And part of this equation is the level of trust between the CPA and their client. This does take time, but if we've established clear expectations at the beginning of the relationship, provided our client with the best possible client service, then the level of trust grows rapidly. And then we are viewed as their trusted business advisor. This best possible client service extends to us in understanding their entire business, not just the financials, and maintaining our code of ethics at all times. The conversation about the life of a millennial in today's workforce is a must for all baby boomers and Gen Xers to listen to and try to understand that it may be different, but that doesn't make it wrong. Ashley is a high-performing millennial who wants to work hard, who wants to be a partner, who wants to help the firm grow, but not in the same way it's been done in the past. I can say that having many conversations over the years with this generation, Ashley articulates it the best. As you are listening to our discussion, try to reflect on your current staff and see if you see any similarities. I bet you will. Now, one of my goals with this podcast is that it'll help you begin to make changes in your work and personal lives so you can better connect with others and create meaningful business relationships. Many people have said that it takes 21 days to start a habit, but a lifetime to keep that pattern. That's why I created the Yes And Challenge to help keep these principles in front of you so you can build up your improvisational muscles. To sign up, please go to petermargaritas.com and scroll down to the Yes And Challenge call to action and click to register to begin building the productive habit of Yes And and the principles of improvisation. And remember to share your experiences on Twitter using the hashtag YesAndChallenge. If you're unsure of what the Yes And Challenge is all about, I discussed this in detail in episode zero. So go back and take a listen. And remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. 
Now, the holiday season is in full gear, and if you're looking for the perfect gift for your team, I recommend purchasing my book. Improv is no joke. Using improvisation to create positive results in leadership and life. You can find it on Amazon.com and on BarnesandNoble.com. If you'd like to purchase more than five books, please email me for some volume discounts at peter at petermargaritas.com. Well, with that said, let's get to the interview with Ashley Matthews. Hey, welcome back to Improv is No Joke. Many of you know that I've spent 10 years in higher education with eight of those years at The Ohio Dominican University here in Columbus, Ohio. One of the great benefits of being a professor is you get to see your students graduate and go off and start developing wonderful careers. I'm excited today to have one of my former students, Athlete Matthews, joining me today on the podcast. Thank you, Ashley, for taking time out of your busy schedule to be interviewed. I greatly appreciate it. Of course, I'm happy to be here. And I have to say, I am so proud to see how your career has evolved from the days that you left Ohio Dominican to where you are today. Um, you, uh, Rachel, uh, Bryce, just to name a few. I, I love it when I can get together and, and talk with you guys because it's so different than talking to you back in 2004. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope it, we've uh, grown a little bit since then, but those are very kind words. Thank you. Well, Rachel... You have grown, Bryce. It's the you know the jury is still out, and, and yeah, still work in progress. There. Still, still work in progress. So before we begin, what I'd like you to do is so the audience can get to know you just a little bit better. Give us your background, starting with when you graduated from the Ohio Dominican University. Sure, I graduated in 2007 with my bachelor's. Went on to take a couple courses after graduation to be eligible for the CPA exam. Uh, a lot of my peers went on to get their master's degree. I did not. Um, I just took those extra courses and did an internship with Deloitte in 2006 prior to graduation. Joined them full-time in January of 2008. Uh, I was with Deloitte for almost eight years uh, and left this past fall to join Ray and & Associates. And most of my background and work is in taxation, so fun stuff. Fun stuff. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to just go, wow. Uh, so what, what, what kind of stuff do you work on? So my area of expertise, I use that term loosely, is <laughs> partnerships. <laughs> so I've worked a lot in real estate partnerships um, and the, the owners of real estate development companies, commercial real estate companies. And jo in joining Ray, I've kind of spearheaded their partnership practice, so to speak, streamlining you know some of our processes and, and consulting and, and the such. So really enjoy that area of the tax code uh, and you know the ever-changing parts of it and how you know you can pretty much do anything with a partnership as long as it's in the partnership agreement so it's always fun you said fun and tax I, okay hold on hold on <laughs> no, I, you know, and, and, and just so the audience knows we're on a, on a Skype video call and, and she's got this wonderful smile as she's sitting there describing her background and, and tax so I, I know she really loves what she does. I do. I do love what I do. And, you know, leaving Deloitte industry was never an option for me. I knew I wanted to stay in public accounting and I loved the work that I did. And I'm glad that I found a firm that fit well with, with what I wanted to do and supported that. Why did you leave Deloitte for Ray? You know, I was looking for more transparency in my upward mobility and, and more, I don't want to, uh, kind of have a guarantee of, hey, if you work hard, it's going to pay off. And 
Deloitte's such a large firm and you never really know what's going to happen no matter how hard you work. And so I was looking for a little bit more, more transparency there and, you know, always looking for the work-life balance and, and it wasn't quite where I wanted it to be at Deloitte. And so joining Ray, you know, provided the balance I was looking for. Work-life balance. Now remind me, uh, how many children do you have? I have three children. There's the work-life out of balance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So flexibility was huge for me, which, you know, I did find at Deloitte, but uh, I just needed a little bit more. And, you're, and you've been able to get that uh, at Rain Associates, and you've been with Ray for, I believe, less than a year. Is that correct? Correct, correct. Yes, and I, I have been able to find that. And the professionals I'm working with here are wonderful. So um, it's been it's been a great change for me. And what is your current title at Ray? I'm a manager. Um, so, you know, I focus in tax services, but do a little bit of everything now with the client base that I have. So how often are you out at your clients? I try to get out there often, you know, as often as I can. I don't like to be behind my desk. It depends on, you know, the time of year, the season. And, um, now we're kind of in consulting mode. So we're out of that compliance piece chained to our desks and trying to, to figure out, you know, the other ways that we can, can provide value and help our clients. So trying to get out there as much as we can. So what's what's your biggest challenge in dealing with your clients from being, as you said, chained to your desk, uh, than actually having to be face-in-face in front of them? So the biggest challenge, you know, communication. So everybody communicates differently, and, and you have clients who have expectations of, you know, returned phone calls and emails and, and how, how do we exchange that dialogue in person and really figuring out their preferred method of communication and figuring out how to deliver those messages in the way that they appreciate to receive them. It's a challenge. And especially, you know, for me with a whole new client base, some of them are legacy Ray clients. A few of them we've picked up since I've joined the firm. And so um, navigating those those relationships that already exist with Ray and and new to the firm. And it's a challenge. Well, and when you say it's a challenge, is it's a challenge just because the, the legacy clients, they've been around and, and you're the fresh new face and they're probably going, another one? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the, the transition is hard. It's difficult. Um, sometimes, you know, it's a retiring partner and, and they don't, they don't understand or don't want to see them go. But yeah, I mean, I think I think just like any public accounting firm, a lot Ray's experienced turnover. And, you know, these clients are great. They've hung in there and Ray's obviously doing something right to, to client service teams to turn over multiple times. But yeah, for the most part, it's they get disillusioned with the whole process of meeting a new person, them getting an, on board and, um, you know, really... They may be happy with the status quo, and so when somebody new comes in and tries to switch it up, there's a little bit of pushback. So how do you put your clients at ease? I mean, I can imagine it's a huge challenge, especially if you're picking up a client that you got a retiring partner who's been with them for a number of years, and then you're the new person, you're the new contact person. How do you, how do you, how do you over time, how do you put that, that client at ease? You know, for me, it's the do. So... You know, lots of people can say lots of great things and and wow them with, you know, whether it be technical knowledge or experience or, you know, their personality. But for me, the money is really where, and I say money in terms of where they really find that they'll follow you is 
in the do. So are you of your word? Do you get stuff done timely? Do you exceed expectations? You know, setting yourself up to exceed expectations versus meet them is huge. So, you know, if I know I'm going to get your project done in a week, I'm going to tell you maybe a week and a half, maybe two weeks, because I want to exceed your expectations and I want to set a client up for exceeding their expectations. If I'm always just meeting expectations, then, you know, I'm mediocre. So we want to make sure, you know, that we're managing their personalities, which is great because, you know, partners can pass down that knowledge. But at the same time, I want to reevaluate how we're doing things and are we doing them the most efficient way possible? Are we bringing all the value to the client that we could be bringing? Are there things that we haven't thought of in the past that we should be thinking of now? And, um, you know, bringing those up in conversation and proposing those types of changes are great, but implementing them is another story. And I feel like my credibility comes from my ability to execute. And when you were talking about exceeding expectations versus meeting expectations, because I remember, you know, if I can get it done in a week, a lot of people say, well, I have it to you in a week. But as you as you well know, in public accounting, every day is a fire drill. Exactly. I have a to do list a mile long and there are days I come in and nothing on that to do list gets done. It's it's always something different and more important. And yeah, I mean, fire drills come up all the time. And so, you know, realistically, yes, if I could sit down and focus on that project, I would get it done in a week. It's not a perfect world. And so, you know, two weeks probably more realistic, um, but I would love to get it to you in a week. Yeah, but I, I like the fact that you, because if if you know that, yeah, I, if I could sit down and just completely focus, which is which is very difficult during a fire drill that's going on, and it's, something's always more important, and then a week, you're at that week later and you're not going to get it, it's, it's harder to call the client and say, look, I need a few more days versus I'm going to build a buffer in this in this project to say, you know what, it, when things do come up, it's not going to set me behind and I'm still going to meet the expectations and still make that client feel good about me having met those expectations. Yeah. And, and a lot of times, you know, we're dealing with time sensitive information. A lot of times clients are looking for us to give them information so that they can make business decisions. And so, you know, if, if they need a quick, quick turnaround, we can do it. And I, pride myself in getting clients timely information and and really working closely with them in that regard. And so I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm going to say, oh, sorry, can't do it. Need more time. You know, we'll get it done. But, you know, when you're looking at those things that may not be quite as time sensitive or it's a large project, you want to build in time so that you know, you make sure that you can meet and or exceed their expectations. So this conversation of communication, I, I'm hearing a couple things. One, the communication with the client. Also coming back into the office and have the communication with whoever, you know, the partner that you report to going, you know what, we've got a time sensitive thing. We've got to get it done. What can you take off my plate so I can get this thing done? Yeah, that's the constant struggle in public <laughs> accounting. Adding to and never subtracting. So, you know, I think it's a big, issue in public accounting right now with, you know, the downturn in 2008, we um, worked with some more with leaner practices than we would prefer. We hired less, you know, we still had attrition when the, the economy turned around a little bit. And so at that five to eight year mark, you know, experienced manager, senior manager, there's a lot of gaps. And so there aren't, there's a lot of work and not many people for it to go around to. And so we're doing more with less people. And those conversations happen frequently and they're difficult. Um, I found that you have to 
you have to be stern and you have to mean what you say. And so in order to be taken seriously, people have a tendency to pile on and see how much you'll take. And so pushing back is always appropriate. But that open line of communication with who you work for and prioritizing your work and maybe calling another client who has a project that's not quite as time sensitive and saying, hey, you know, we may, it looks like we may, you know, need some more time or just explaining. A lot of clients are going to understand. And so it's very helpful to have somebody um, to talk to about that and, and really th- to support you. Yeah. I, I, you know, having spent some time in public, I thoroughly agree. And I think those who are not in public accounting and clients don't really think of the word adaptability and CPA in the same sentence. <laughs> but as you very well described, CPAs must be adaptable to everyday occurrences in order to be successful. Because if not, if we're not adapting, it's way too rigid. And then we're going to start losing clients and losing business. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This definitely is not a profession for someone who wants to come in and sit at their desk and have their day planned out and be predictable and, and, you know, get their to-do list done every day and punch the clock and go home for sure. It's not. But that's the stereotype that's out there. So how are you breaking the stereotype? Cause we have, we have to start breaking it. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, you know, I tell people I'm a CPA and you get the weird kind of look like, huh, <laughs> really? So, you know, I, I think that, like you said, the CPA stereotype is just, you know, of a person that's chained to a desk every day. They're cranking out financial statements or tax returns or counting beans in the back office, right? That's the the famous uh, stereotype there. So we're working, especially here at Ray, to for our um, clients to view us as their business advisor, their trusted business advisor. Um, we want to understand all aspects of their business, just not their tax compliance issues or their issues with gap in, in their financial statements. We want to understand how they operate. We want to help them improve their processes. And, you know, to us, in order to be successful in this space, that's something that we we have to do. And and so, you know, not only are we trying to break the mold as far as perception of accounting goes for people in the outside world, but for our clients as well. Yeah. And, and you're doing the right things by getting out from behind your desk and getting to know the client, getting to know how the operations work inside and out, just not focusing solely on the tax piece or the auditing piece. Um, I've got a number of stories where uh, CPAs haven't visited a client in years. Uh, and when I'm not talking individual clients, I'm talking business clients. The information comes in, we take care of it, we send it back. And there's really no relationship building there as opposed to to become that trusted business advisor. You have to get out. You have to build a relationship with your client. Uh, they need to get to know you and you need to get to know them and their business in order. And Ray, sounds like they're, they're doing a great job with that in order to help the firm continue to grow. Yeah, I mean, the, the future of the public, you know, the CPA and public accounting is not more complex regulatory issues. It's not more gap pronouncements. It's not more complicated code sections and regulations. It's really in how do we increase profitability for our clients? How do we help them navigate the business issues that they're having? Um, how do we become that partner? To be viewed as a part or of doing business or an investment in our business versus a you're the cost of doing right. business. We don't want to be a sunk cost, that's for sure. That's right, and, and it sounds like you're going down, <laughs> down, down a great path. Um, so graduating in 
God, I, I say this, I feel like, man, I'm really old. In 2007, <laughs> and you've been out in the workforce, you are that five to eight to nine year person that has this void. And, and, and you know, lack of a better term, you're, you're classified as a millennial, which works differently than my group, the baby boomers. How has that been in your career? And, and navigating those waters. <laughs> you know, as millennials, I feel like we have a chip on our shoulder. Everybody has their opinion of who millennials are and what they are and how they operate. And just like I don't want to stereotype baby boomers, um, I would hope that <laughs> people would not stereotype us as millennials. But we do have unique challenges in the workforce. You know, we're we're working with the generation gap is huge. Um, you know, boomers are working longer than than they have, you know, historically. And and we have to learn how to navigate the, those age gaps and those experience gaps. And, you know, we have that reputation as being lazy and not wanting to work or put the time in. And and we're often faced with the, the partner who sits in his office and says, in my day, I just got the work done. You know, we cranked it out and you put your head down and you worked. And when you looked up, you were promoted to manager. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard that's a hard thing to manage with, you know, the new generation coming in because we are not afraid to put our head down and work and and to do that that hard work and and bite our, you know, put our time in, but we want to see the impact we're making and we want to understand how what we're doing benefits and contributes and and really how we're appreciated. And so, you know, before you know, it's just, it's generational norms, it's differences there. And most companies who are successful in managing the generation and bringing on um, millennials understand that there's a difference in thinking of, you know, where we work and what we do in careers and how that impacts our life. And, and they're willing to, to accept that and, and um, really help us flourish. I, I think the, the term millennial has probably been overused in the fact that, you know, when you graduated, you were a millennial coming into the workforce. And, and what I tell people these days when I start talking about the generations, I go, have you ever heard this guy? He's a millennial. You may have heard of him. His name is Mark Zuckerberger. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, or, Zuckerberg. Yeah, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Z. Yeah. Or um, I saw last year on CNBC that millennials contribute over $2 trillion in U.S. consumer spending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's, once again, stereotype of that millennial is they're not coming out of college. They're in the workforce. You, you guys may, you guys work differently than the way we did growing up. But you're much more technological savvy. You, you, I, I, when I left Ohio Dominican and was out, I, and I would say this even while I was at ODU, I would love to be a senior graduating at that point in time because I always said you guys always had the world by the tail because of your drive, your determination, and your technological savvy that you guys will go out there and break that stereotype and say that, you know, I may, I don't have to be chained to a desk. Give me the work. Let's use the technology. Let's get it done. Public accounting, it's a profession. However, we do punch a clock. 
It's like somebody walking into a distribution center and we are. So I think that's a little bit of the, you know, have you punched that clock today? Have you looked at it? But I haven't seen you sitting here, but you know what? You're providing excellent value to the firm and to the client when you're able to work in a different way. Right. And the firms, you know, that especially in public accounting and it's trending up upward in terms of firms adopting this perspective, but you know, a lot of it now is I don't care where you work as long as your clients are happy and the work is getting done. And that's huge, you know, for especially for my generation, you know, people in the early part of the generation are having families and have children and those in the later part of the generation, you know, have other responsibilities and things that they want to do too. And commuting to an office every day may not be, you know, something that they want or are willing to do. And if it helps with their job satisfaction to be able to utilize technology in a manner that they can do their job and do it well from somewhere other than a desk um, in an office, then, you know, I think that companies are wise to embrace that. Yeah, I mean, this even goes to succession planning because that's one of the big issues out there. Who's going to take over the firm when I retire? And a lot of the millennial group has said, I don't want to work like you. Uh, I, I don't want to do this. And actually, uh, I had a person who came up to me in Minnesota and shared a story with me. And where the manager, the partner came and dropped a file on his desk and said, I want you to handle this transaction this way. And as he's walking away, the manager said, no, I think we've got a, I, I've got a better way to do it. Mm-hmm. The partner turned around and said, OK, show me, which he did. And the manager was right. And then the manager said, if this was my firm. I would run it differently. And and he goes, I knew I was maybe doing a career limiting move at the yeah, time. Right. <laughs> but the partner said, okay, how would you do this? And he goes, you've got 10 partners in this office. Why not have 20 partners in this office? Spread out the work so we're not working the long hours. Spread out that wealth. And you've got happier people. And he said that that really resonated with that partner. And they're going, so this is about two years ago, they're going through a process of changing that culture, changing that firm structure. So my question to you would be, if Ray was your firm or you wanted to have your own firm, what would you do different today that maybe uh, other firms aren't doing differently or even as in a Deloitte? Well, for me, you know, technology is huge and process development. And and if you're doing the same thing today as you were doing three years ago, you're missing the boat. And, you know, I am working for a generation of partners who hand wrote tax returns <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I know. <laughs> we're behind their desk. You know, I'm sure you maybe uh, are familiar with that a little bit. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. I think she just threw me under the bus, everybody. Do you hear that? Uh, thump, thump, thump. <laughs> but, um, you know, their, <laughs> their perspective of how you climb the ladder is different. And think about succession planning a lot because I want to be a partner in our firm, but I want to be a partner in a firm that I'm proud of and a firm that is willing to grow and change and meet the needs of, of the professionals that you know, we'll be running it eventually. And so for me, you know, technology is huge and changing the way that we do the work that we do, um, evaluating efficiencies and processes and morale and, you know, the work that we're doing constantly, the profitability of our clients, do they make sense to us? Um, and not keeping certain clients that may be better 
and happier served by another firm just because that relationship is there and it's been there for years. Really evaluating, you know, where do we make money? What makes our people happy? Um, where do we want to be? And and not just taking on all clients that we can take on because we can. And being thoughtful about where we where we put our resources and spend our time and and you know, being more transparent about where we see people in the firm, where we see their career going, where they are in the pipeline, so to speak. That's huge as far as partner track goes. Do we see you becoming a partner? Have we slotted you in our partner pipeline and our succession planning? And just being transparent of that. You know, if somebody's already counted me out before I've even been able to, to make a difference, I want to know that because you know, that's something I have to work against. And so, you know, for me, it's technology, it's transparency, it's being smart about the work that we're doing and when we're doing it. And it's realizing that the best um, decisions and and some of the best relationships are are made out from behind your desk and, and really talking to people. I thoroughly agree. And you mentioned something about resources and investing. Um, how does that relate to your continuing education? Because obviously we know we have a compliance that we have to meet X amount of hours, but how does that, how does that fit in? So I think uh, there there's obviously a difference in, in size of firm and, and internally developed versus externally developed and, and whether we're making a commitment in educating our people or a commitment in making sure they're um, in compliance with their licensing requirements. And so, you know, I was happy that coming from Deloitte, obviously internally developed continuing professional education was top notch and it was great. And, and, you know, they built a university for it. So, you know, they were really bought into that, but coming to Ray, you know, the first thing that I was told was, Hey, probably Ohio society and AICPA courses are not going to cut it for you in terms of technical skills. And there's going to be some, but not all. And so really focusing on and looking for where am I going to get the most value? Where is the most relevant information for me? And how how am I going to learn the, what I need and stay on top of changing regulations and, and learning even those soft skills and, and improving those and just not taking the one-hour free course just because I need the CPE credit? Right. It sounds like more of a versus compliance. It's more of a really a, a learning objective. We, we need you to be well-rounded, First and foremost, technically sound when you sit in front of the client, but the ability to communicate with that client in a manner that connects with them, that they understand, because you know we speak a different language in accounting. Mm-hmm. It's just like speaking Japanese to somebody or, or Greek <laughs> or something. Because when you say depreciation to someone who's not an accountant, they go, oh, that's the value I lose on my car when I drive it off the car line. Exactly, exactly. And you're going, no, 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 that's a systematic allocation of an asset over time. And they're going, oh, what is Right. That, yeah. So it's bridging that bridging that gap and being able to connect with that client in a way that you are that trusted business advisor. Yeah, and I you know, I would connect that back to, you know, working with the boomer generation and, you know, they're I don't want people to think that as millennials we're just, you know, out we're biding our time till we get your job. <laughs> you know, there's so much that I can learn from those partners and there's so many things that they do great. Um, and I don't want to change everything, but I think there may be a way that we can do it better. But, you know, their ability to build relationships, their ability to communicate technical things to their clients and and really to have those conversations, those difficult conversations and how they operate and navigate 
you know, that world, there's a wealth of information for us to learn and bring me along. I want to see it. I want to see how you interact. And, and, you know, for me, I learn the best there. Yeah, that's a great training ground is being out there with the partner and the client and watching how they're interacting, as well as being prepared for when the partner looks at you and says, so you want to explain this? Or <laughs> or if the client doesn't look at the partner and says, I'm going to ask you this question that you're able to sit there and think about for about a split second and to provide them with a coherent, intelligent type of an answer. Exactly. Versus going, uh, uh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, the expectation is when you're in front of a client that you have some type of an answer and I'll get back to you works a lot, but when you're face to face with somebody, I'll get back to you doesn't always work. So, but some of the skills that I've learned is in terms of having conversations with clients that may be difficult. So, you know, billing conversations or, you know, where we can't quite get to the answer they want, or we're communicating an adverse tax effect. Um, I've learned how to have those conversations from being in a partner's office when he calls the client or tagging along with a partner when he has those conversations and how he handles them or she handles them um, have really shaped how I'm able to, to have those conversations as well. We have to have difficult conversations with our clients, but you're now in a manager role and you have to be able to have that same type of conversation with that client, with the people that report to you. And and I, I have found sometimes the people having that conversation with the people that report to you is a lot harder than having it with the client. Well, and I think too, as I try to pass those skills down to the people that report to me, my staff and seniors, I find their tendency is that if we're communicating um, adverse results, they internalize it as being something they did wrong. And that's not the case. You know, delivering, you know, bad news, it's hard enough as it is without saying or having the attitude that you somehow did something wrong. And so trying to counsel that out of people is very hard. <laughs> I like how you put that, counsel that out of people. <laughs> <laughs> That that is it is really hard, but it's also a you know it's it's a learning process. I, I think when because the person's thinking, oh my god, I just made a mistake. I did I, I I did something wrong versus the viewpoint. Maybe I did make the mistake, but what should have been? How can I learn from this so I don't make that same mistake again? M mistakes are just learning opportunities. They are. They definitely are, and I think. You know, those learning opportunities are further reinforced by how I respond to that mistake. So if if they come and own up to a mistake and I, you know, how did you do this? I can't believe you did this. How did you miss this? It was right there um, versus, hey, how do we fix it? You know, let's let's figure out a solution and let's move on. And they have already beat themselves up enough that they made a mistake. Um, especially the millennial generation, because we want to be right. We want to do it right. We want to learn um, how to do it right. And so for me, you know, me saying anything in, about you know negative or a negative tone or anything is not going to help the situation at all. And so my job as a leader is to figure out and bring them back up. Um, and and how do we how do we come up with a solution and how do you learn from this so it doesn't happen again? It sounds like a lot of empathy from what I'm hearing. And uh, I I had a boss at Victoria's Secret who once told me, "Don't come into my office with your problems. Come into my office with a problem and your solution, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. But 
don't ever walk into my office without a solution. And I learned that the hard way. Um, But that's something that I pass down all the time is we're we're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. But, and I love how you empathize with, and you know, you're not using the negative tone or I can't believe you did this or whatever. It's like, okay, you missed it. Let's, I, hopefully you're coming in here with how you can solve it. And if not, then as my former boss did, she sent me away. You've got an hour to get back in here with a solution or two. And, and were they right? No, but it led us down a path to finding a solution. Right. And, and that helps them grow. I mean, the only in this profession, especially you learn by doing. And, and if I, you know, when you, your boss always gave you an answer, then you're going to come for an answer and you're not going to think about it. And I find that train of thinking, it has to be learned because the first thought is, oh, this is wrong. And it's never, okay, well, what's the impact and how does, how does it impact, you know, X and, you know, it, if we fix it this way, what does that mean? If we fix it that way, what does that mean? Uh, you know, people hate the term materiality, but is it material? Is it, you know, just thinking it through that, taking it through that one more step because, you know, wrong answers sometimes have different levels of wrongness, I guess. (laughs) Different levels of wrongness. Some are, some are okay wrong and some are, oh crap wrong. (laughs) Well, I guess if we're talking about, you know, a $600 mistake versus a number much larger than that, now that's relative to the size of the client, right? Right. You know, I think having some perspective in that regard helps a little bit. Yeah, very well put. Very well put. (laughs) Anything else you'd like to add before we begin to wrap this up that we maybe haven't discussed? You know, I I think as far as, you know, looking at millennials and as they're, you know, growing to become leaders, we're we're not okay with sitting our hands and waiting. You know, we're knocking on that door. We we want to be the next um, partner, the next leadership team in our firm and and, in our workplace. and, And we want to be difference makers and, and make a change. And if you're expecting somebody that's going to sit behind the desk and, and do, you know, everything you ask, you're not going to find that in my generation. Very well put. And, and I love the fact you, you like, uh, you like to get out there. You like to get your, lack of a better term, your hands dirty. You want to be in front of the client. You want to be involved within, within the firm from the get go. So it, it's, the, the likelihood that you would leave drops dramatically the more that you are emotionally in, in invested into the firm. And to get emotionally invested into that firm requires a lot of conversation, a lot of trust, and, and a lot of those things on, on both sides in, in order to feel that emotional equity per se. I agree. So before we wrap this up, uh, just so the audience can maybe get to know you just a little bit better, I'm going to put you through my 10 quick questions. It's kind of a rapid fire kind of thing. So are you ready for this? No, no. <laughs> uh, no, but go ahead. <laughs> All right. The first question, Microsoft Word or an old-fashioned typewriter? No, Microsoft Word. That was easy. I thought I'd throw you a softball. Yeah. What's your favorite tax code section? <laughs> 704. Okay. And what is section 704? Um, it's partnerships and uh, basically partnerships. Basically, you know what? I should really know that, but I've been away from it so long. I'm just going to say moving to the third question. There you go. Disney Channel or the Cartoon Network? Oh, Disney Channel. Oh, Disney Channel. And, and so what, what, what's your favorite show that your kids like to watch? Uh, that's a good question. We like bubble guppies. Bubble guppies. Yes, it's uh, 
mermaid kids that are, you know, put in different situations, but it's a school under the sea. Uh-huh. Pretty cool. Cool. Uh, when my day, my son was watching Blues Clues. He became addicted to Blues Clues. It's all about Blues Clues. Well, th- this fourth question is really easy for you. I should maybe have had this as a second. Partnerships or C-Corps? Oh, partnerships. Yeah. What's your favorite movie? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, probably a kid movie because that's all we watch. Um, <laughs> probably of the Disney of the Disney variety, um, but we have been stuck right now on Into the Woods, which is a musical with um, some old fairy tales, so it's pretty cool. I'll have to look that one up. I have not seen that one yet. Uh, what's your favorite song on your playlist? Oh, gosh. Um, it's a country song by Randy Hauser. It's called Like a Cowboy, and it's probably because I just saw him in concert about a month ago. I went to the Buckeye Country Superfest. And uh, so that's on my playlist on repeat right now. Oh, cool. I didn't know you were a country girl. I am. You know, if given the chance to see Luke Bryan live, I couldn't pass that up. Not in a heartbeat. Uh, <laughs> what's, your favorite to, what's your favorite city to visit on vacation? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, I do like the metropolitan cities. I think they're super cool. So I like to go to Chicago. Um, I went there a lot for work, but it's really nice to go there for, um, you know, weekend trips, whatnot, just to kind of sightsee and explore. Yeah, Chicago is one of my favorite cities. I, I've, I've been there twice this year, but I go up to I go spend time at the uh, Second City uh, workshops and, and the training department. Uh, but I do love Chicago a whole lot. A lot of great food. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer PC or a Mac? PC. PC. But I've never really used a Mac, so I guess that's where I depart from my generation a little bit. I think ten, they have a tendency to like the Mac a little better. So they do, but I also think it's also part of. It's kind of uh, depends on the profession because obviously a lot of corporate America uses PCs because of Windows, and those those who don't have to use that more on the kind of the creative side tend to use the PC, even though I mean, uh, use the Mac, even though now you can have Windows on your Mac, which to me is wrong. But that's just yeah. that's just a personal <laughs> thing. Um, Gilligan's Island or the Big Bang Theory. A big bang theory. Okay. Number 10 last. How did you find yourself becoming a CPA? I took Pete Margaritas' <laughs> course at Ohio Dominican no, University. No, no, and, no. <laughs> um, his improv and humor made CPAs look wonderful. Okay, now now you can tell us all the truth. Thank you for the Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. It, I honestly didn't decide until I took my intro accounting courses and and really just kind of liked the problem solving aspect of it. Um, you know, I think accounting and CPAs get a bad rap in terms of oh, I don't want to do math the rest of my life. Well, it's it's not math. It's it's a lot of problem solving and finding solutions. And I really like that aspect of it. And so when you started at ODU, did you have an idea that accounting might be a major, or was it those early classes that convinced you to? Try it as a major. You know, I thought it may be a good major, but I didn't really pile up my schedule with accounting courses with the intent that it would be my major, I guess is the way to put it. So, you know, I was on the fence until I took those courses. So it was either going to be accounting or theology? (laughs) No, (laughs) actually accounting or I was going to be an English teacher. Oh, really? Yeah. Very different. That is very different, but that works really well in what you do because you've got, you do a lot of writing in your job. Yep. Yeah, and to, become a, to be an effective writer in what you do goes a long, long way. 
I would agree with that. Technical memos are a piece of cake to me. <laughs> were, were they were they stress a lot of others completely out? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, Ash, I can't thank you enough. I so enjoy this conversation. And like I said, I'm so proud of you and your career and where you are. I want to be there the day when you have your the, the party that you become partner because I, I know that's not too far down the line. You'll make a great partner with Ray or wherever you go. I, I know the uh, Ray and Associates fairly well. And uh, let's just say they're very lucky to have you. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate those words very much. <laughs> Thank you. I have to say that Ashley is extremely wise and very driven which is a wonderful combination to have in this day and age. I also have to say that I've had a number of former students that possess these same characteristics, and they have taught me a lot over the years, and they still do today. Ashley shared a lot of great insights into the mind of the millennial, and I would be remiss if I didn't make some connection to the world of improvisation. The key principle that I heard throughout this interview was listening. Listening to the client, listening to the partners, listening to your staff, etc. Listening is the key in learning. She acknowledges that she can learn a lot from those who are older and wiser than her, and they can also learn from her. Part of that learning is taking your staff out to visit with the client. Have them listening in on phone conversations, getting them out from behind their desks so they can learn the people side of the business. And the other key principle of improvisation in play here is the level of respect we have for each other. When we don't have any respect for the other person, I like to call that Congress. Now, you don't have to like them, but you have to have respect for the other person to move things in a positive way. This was a fun and very thought-provoking interview, and I hope you enjoyed it. If so, I would greatly appreciate it if you would write a review on iTunes. I think Ashley would appreciate it as well. In episode 27, I interviewed Janice Cohen, who just published the book, the Intuitive Therapist. So until next time, use the principles of improvisation to help create an outstanding client and staff relationships. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.